Hi, and welcome to Things of Interest. I'm Sophia French. And I'm Serena Chen. And this episode, we're going to be talking about allyship. While we're both members of marginalized communities, we also want to be good allies to other marginalized communities. And it's something I've had to talk quite a lot about uh, to a lot of my straight friends. <laughs> and so I thought it would be a good thing to talk about on the podcast about like what allyship means, like how to be a good ally and how to best support the people you love in your life. Aww. Yeah. So Serena, what does being a good ally mean for you? For me, it means shutting the hell up and listening, first and foremost, I think. I, can, I think it can be really tempting to kind of brand yourself or take on the identity of an ally. And in some ways, like, a little part of me is kind of allergic to to even the word ally. Because um, it seems like it, it should be just, you know, being a decent person. It shouldn't have, like, its own extra special name. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so if we just want to be good, decent people, then the first thing and the most helpful thing for ourselves and for others as well is really listening. And I know it sounds, like, super freaking cheesy, but, like, actually listening and not waiting your turn to speak, not thinking about how do I fit in all this, just really forgetting about yourself for like one hot second and really listening to the the experiences and the the pains that people who are different to you go through. And from that, naturally, because I, I believe that we're all intrinsically, we all are good people who want good things for other people who we're we're all people who care about others just by being like the nature of being human and if we just took a hot darn second to to really center other people and to listen to other people then the actions that will support them and will benefit them will flow on naturally from that whether it's because they've told you what they want you to do, what they don't want you to do, or whether it's because you've listened enough to empathize with their position and so you understand what to do and what not to do next time. But I think the the most important thing is just listening. So cheesy. So true. <laughs> I try to make the point to people who sort of say, you know, I want to be a good ally, I want to support you and whatever, that it's difficult and it's going to be uncomfortable for them. Um, And I think a lot of people don't realise that it's necessary to kind of put yourself out there in order to be an effective ally, right? Like it's not enough to be like not racist, or against racism (laughs) like you have to be actively anti-racist right like Mm. you know if you walk into an office and everything is covered in christmas stuff you need to kind of raise to someone and be like hey must suck to be jewish in this office like oh yikes (laughs) 
um, like you have to be kind of flagging stuff and like actively watching out for these things because for me certainly like a lot of the mental load I carry as someone who's a member of a number of marginalized communities is the fact that often I am the only person calling this stuff out the fact that yeah. I am the only person who apparently has like the expertise to put into words that like being a sexist is bad not including <laughs> own voices is bad you know, I, I was talking to a friend and I asked them to call out something for me because I was like, it'll make more of an impact if it's not just my voice. And he yeah. was like, okay, what do I say? And I'm like, yeah, if I tell you what to say, this doesn't actually improve my life at all. You know that, right? <laughs> like, if I, mm. if I have to write this letter for you, for you to send it, it does not help me. <laughs> but also I think, like, yeah, drawing that line between being a decent human person and being an ally is really powerful, right? Because, like... Sometimes I will have people saying, oh, I refer to you by your correct gender. And that makes, you know, that's, that's how I express my allyship. And it's like, incorrect. You refer to me by my correct gender because you're not a real dick. <laughs> it's not a thing you do to actively support me. It's a thing you do because I'm another human on the goddamn planet. And even if you didn't like me, you should still use my correct gender. Because that's what yeah. you do for every cis person in your life. Um, and I think that's a line that's really difficult for people to kind of think about, like, even if they experience other marginalizations, like thinking about, well, firstly, I think it is difficult and exhausting and time consuming as a member of a marginalized group to think very hard about, like, how to help people be a good ally and what you actually want from allies. Mm hmm. And so then on top of that, like, if you're someone, even if you experience, like, other marginalizations, like, who then has to try and be a good ally for another group, because you've never had to kind of sit down and be like, well, what would I want from these people? Mm -hmm. Thinking a lot about, like, gay men in my life right now, right? Like, uh, gay men and white women. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> Because you never had to be like, you know, this is exactly what I need from an ally. You then find it really tough to turn around and be like, how do I be a good ally to other people? Mm. And I think you've hit on like this tension that, at least from my perspective, is the main tension I feel around allyship, is this tension between uh, marginalized groups should not have to do the work do the emotional labor of, you know, really laying out step by step, point by point, a, a plan and a template for not marginalized groups to be a good ally. It's a tension between that and people kind of taking on this allyship um, badge, if you will, to the next level, to the point where they're speaking over mm. the the people from the marginalized groups. And I I find this a lot with a lot of, like, very, very vocal male feminists. And I find this a very difficult topic to approach. Because on the one hand, I think it's great that they're talking about it. Um, they Their voice will have much more impact to, you know, other men and other cishet people. So, you know, great. They should keep talking about it. But it gets... What makes me really uncomfortable with those positions is that they, uh, it gets to the point where it feels like that they're not necessarily doing it just to uh, 
to just be a decent human, it becomes like a self-promotional kind of identity that they've taken on to to further um, further market themselves. themselves. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and that makes me extremely uncomfortable, especially when their voices are naturally raised above the the voices of other people and the marginalized groups that they're trying to to support. So it, it's this like really kind of uh, really curly, tangly tension that I myself haven't really uh, reconciled and I don't really have like a good straightforward solution to. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> that's that. So when you say like group that they're trying to support, I kind of go, mm. well, are they? Because if someone's like in the allied business to get props for themselves, to market themselves, right, then they're not a good ally sort of by definition because they are centering their own benefit over other people. And I think what we see in a lot of leftist groups is that there are some very prominent, typically men, typically white men who are vocal mm. feminists, really big supporters of you know various marginalized groups, really like loud about this and behind closed doors are abusive. And there's been, like, um, some scandals around this in, like, the Australian Greens, I know. Like, there have been some big names mm. who, like, haven't even been taken down by it. But, like, I know friends who have been abused by them in, like, leftist circles in Australia. And it's kind mm. of like, so when I see, like, someone being vocal about uh, marginalised communities in a way that serves to improve their own reputation as someone who is, you know, progressive and good at this, et cetera, et cetera, like the hairs mm. on my neck actually go up because that has become yeah. more of a warning sign than anything else, that this is a dangerous yeah. person to be around. Well, that's the thing, though, is that I don't think these people uh, – I really, really believe that these people start off, like, really wanting to do good and not wanting to promote themselves. And – I do think it is a case of like power corrupts, right? Like they mm -hmm. get more exposure, um, and rightfully so. Like I think that's great that they're getting more exposure because these messages are getting more exposure, and these messages and these ideas are the main thing that we we want to promote. These messages of love and support and inclusion, and that's really important. But you know, as they get more and more. Uh, visibility, I feel like there it is easier for someone in that position to to fall to the temptations, if you will, uh, and and start focusing more on their own uh, selfish gains rather than what was originally there. And I think this is like a like a timeless <laughs> problem of power corrupting. But this is also something that I worry about when I want to to give messages of support to other marginalized groups that I'm not a part of, is that every time I I feel like posting a message of support in, on social media, every time I feel like doing anything that's that's public, essentially, I worry a lot that the attention will be on me as a person rather uh, more so than the message itself. Uh, and and this is a real worry. And I think this is a huge reason why um, there are a lot of people out there who really hesitate to, to stand up and be vocal and to 
to offer messages, public messages of support. I think with private messages, I don't feel this problem. And I don't think anyone else would, you know, feel this kind of hesitation. But definitely with public messages, I I worry about that a lot. And so it's like, well, how do we make sure that people... How do we make sure that the focus for everyone, whether you're speaking and listening, is on the message rather than the people, I guess, is the real question then. Well, you have to think about the function of communication in that instance, right? Like, Mm. what function is your communication serving? So, like, a few weeks ago um, on Twitter, I posted about how I have only purchased Indigenous created things, like Australian Indigenous created things, for Christmas this year right? Mm. The, the function of that communication is unclear, right? Like my desired function was to show other non-Indigenous people that this was actually really easy and like I yeah. can give some pointers if they want me to because the burden of this should not be on Indigenous people and it's just like mm-hmm. it's so straightforward to make that switch to just buying like previously I bought almost exclusively from um, people of colour and Indigenous people but I think like the experiences of the Australian Indigenous people and everything they go through on a daily basis today is so shithouse that mm. I need to be like, you know, capitalism voting with my wallet for that kind of work <laughs> currently. Yeah. Like, I need to prioritise that. And because I know that that function was unclear, I clarified it in following tweets because, like, I didn't want anyone to go like, oh, wow, you're such a good ally to the Indigenous communities. It's like, well, mm. no. Like, I'm That's not... That's not the point. <laughs> yeah, like, I didn't buy all the shit and I was very conflicted about posting about it as well because I was like I don't want anyone to congratulate me for like buying some boss presents for my parents when all I did was like go online shopping for slightly longer than I might have otherwise right like it's not yeah I want you to buy this too like that is the function yeah like I want you to also think about buying and actually buying from from indigenous businesses yeah and that is the function. Yeah. And once yeah. I kind of like realize that that's the function that I want it, because I keep going, I want to post something, but I don't know why. And I don't think it's to benefit myself. Um, as soon as I realized, I was like, oh, it's so I can tell other white people to do it. <laughs> um, like I could clarify that that was the function of my communication. And of course, like somewhere like Twitter, I still run the risk of people taking my words out of context. But honestly, like that's, that was a risk I was willing to take to kind of be like, this is easy. There is yeah. genuinely no excuse for not doing this. And I would not have posted about this unless I was like, I was so surprised by how easy it was. I thought there mm. would be much more of a barrier to me making this decision and like left like an additional couple of weeks to do Christmas shopping because of that. Mm. And that was why I was talking about it. But that was still like, that's really on the line between like people praising me for doing well and people like actually listening to what I'm saying. Mm. Um, and that's why I was like really worried about it before I did it. Mm. And I think like, I mean, that worry is a good sign, right? Like <laughs> I never want to get complacent, but yeah. whenever like to kind of like stop myself from spiraling, I will try and go like, okay, like being that worried about it is actually a really good sign that you're not being a dick. Right, right. But I also yeah. think that only works on a personal level when you've already gone through that very careful thought process about the function of the communication. Yeah. And I think there are there are a lot of examples of this when we talk about like uh, male feminists, right? When we look at um, groups mm-hmm. like 
Tough Talk, which is the New Zealand one. Do you know them? No, I don't. Um, Tough Talk is a group that wants to improve men's well-being in New Zealand. So they focus mm-hmm. on the stigma surrounding men's mental health and sort of opening it up and talking about it. And they're New Zealand-based and run. They produce, like, mm-hmm. short videos and documentaries and provide tools and have a blog and sort of talk very bluntly about their journey. And I think they're a wonderful example of people going, like, you know, this is a problem. Maybe they went, it exists because of the patriarchy. We know it exists because of the patriarchy, but, like, this is how we solve it. This mm-hmm. is how we communicate in a way to solve it. Um, I think there have been some, like, a few years ago, there was a big uh, clip from Justin Baldoni's TED Talk. So he's Raphael Solano on Jane the Virgin, and he did a TED Talk about masculinity, basically, and he was like, masculinity's mm-hmm. fucked. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's people like both of those examples are really like people going like, what is the purpose of our communication? What is the purpose of what we are doing? And what can mm. we like meaningfully influence, right? Like I think there are times when you can play to your strengths. And like for me, like being white, I can push a lot of things further. I can be a lot more kind of up in people's faces and are quote-unquote difficult <laughs> than I think a person of colour who also experienced my marginalisations could be. So, like, definitely I put more mm. pressure on myself because of that to kind of, like, push change forward. But it also means, like, I am very careful to sort of actively say, like, hey, so we don't have cultural leave for EDOL for sort of work. Like, maybe we should have that. Mm. Hey, we've got really diverse colleagues, but none of the leadership is really that diverse. What's what's up with that, guys? Like, how did that happen? <laughs> You want a rising tide to lift all boats, right? Like, yeah. You want feminism to be intersectional. And the act of teaching people to be intersectional is so difficult. For me, at least, the one of the key um, hurdles that we as a society would do well to get past is this kind of hyperfixation on the individual and like individual people and i wish i wish as a society we would just care less <laughs> about it and care more about you know the the communities and the groups of people surrounding you um and that could be your like work colleagues and if our if our discourse could be less about oh like Oh my god. So you know how like leftist discourse is just full of um like controversies and like people getting cancelled left and right. And on one hand it's like, yeah, I think if if someone's saying something problematic, then it shows that maybe they should not have that platform. But on the other hand, I also feel like we're concentrating on uh on the wrong area we should really be thinking about how we normalize good conversation and good discussion and and in in a lot of ways like you know the the quote unquote cancel culture whatever that is who knows what that is because it's a, pretty much a meme by now but in some ways like you know uh down platforming 
problematic people and like lifting up voices, new voices uh, who have good ideas and who have uh, positive messaging and just like basically keep doing that until it's, it's really not about who's saying what. It's not about who's saying the things, but it's more about what is being said. I just wish that we would get over celebrities and personalities to represent ideas of allyship and inclusion and intersectionality. And I wish we would move from that space into creating a space where where these kinds of ideas and messages and these actions that we take uh, are normalized. Like it's it's normal for someone to to speak up when when you've got a full panel full of white dudes you know it's normal for someone to call that out it becomes not unexpected uh and the more normalized that kind of those kinds of actions can be then the less scary it is for people to to say it and the less likely um people will get individualized attention from it mm. So it really is one of those it's like unionizing it's like unionizing but for social issues not for not for work it's like the more we as a, a collective can all start normalizing calling bad behavior out calling bad things out um the more we can normalize standing up for for marginalized groups then the less so, quote-unquote fame that we mm. would get from it the the less uh selfish gain that we would get from it and so therefore we're kind of min- minimizing the the chances that someone would abuse that power and the chances that people would would do those actions for personal gain yeah. and so the more people act this way then the easier it becomes for everyone and the less problematic it becomes so it's it's really one of those like tipping point things. Like we all got to get in on it. We all got to. Okay, I think I've answered my own question. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> we just got to do it. <laughs> the real thing that needs to be cancelled is cancel culture itself. Dude, I don't even like know <laughs> what cancel culture means anymore. Oh, I I say it a lot at work when I get mad yeah. at people. I'm like, they're cancelled. They're done. They're out. Yeah. Sure. Something my psych talked to me about, which has actually been really useful for improving my patience, basically. (laughs) (laughs) I've been getting very burnt out and, as a result, very angry. Um, Is like there's a there's a behavioural psychology idea around like the stages of change, Mm -hmm. and so like when people want to make a change, they kind of go through like they go through pre-contemplation which is kind of like yes yeah and then contemplation when you're actually thinking about it then preparation Mm. action maintenance and then hopefully not relapse those kind of stages are a really good way of understanding where someone is at um and i think one of the things i find most frustrating is a lot of corporations claim to be at the action or the maintenance stage when actually they're like culturally really at the pre-contemplation stage a lot of the time Mm -hmm. where like no one's even considered that there are more than two genders um Mm -hmm. they just have like a line in a policy that's like don't be a shit heel and that's meant to be enough kind of surrounding that this is something i find very difficult to kind of 
grapple with is like the fact that to me it's patently obvious that people are not in the action stage a lot of the time and yet everyone wants to believe that they're there and they sort of go like oh yeah I take action and then when you say what exactly do you do it's like um and suddenly like this is something I indirectly thought about a lot before my site kind of gave me this framework to see it through where like um we've talked before about how like I can't really attend rallies because of my combination of illnesses and disabilities um like it just makes it physically and mentally extremely taxing and occasionally risky Mm. for me um to do that and so like I worry that I'm not taking enough action and that I'm not supporting people enough and kind of living my values enough um but then when it comes to like the amount of things that I push forward like at my workplace the charity I um I'm on the uh, council of like everywhere where you know like this right like this is action Serena mm. because a lot of our ideas and I've heard this from people listening to the podcast and I don't know if you have as well like people haven't thought about them that deeply before and so talking about things like huh. how to be a good ally is actually like that's action baby I still can't believe people listen to this podcast yeah <laughs> I mean we listen to ourselves when we record <laughs> yeah and then when we edit it so it gets listened to oh, like yeah. at least four times <laughs> <laughs> but like having that getting to that action stage is actually very very difficult and it takes a lot of time particularly when it comes to allyship and that contemplation and preparation stage and you know mm. you you talked a lot about wanting people to listen and i think that's very much that preparation stage is when you listen just constantly mm-hmm. and get into the habit of listening as well and into the habit of active listening because mm-hmm. oh, people are really bad at that. <laughs> it <laughs> yeah. makes me really mad. Even like it makes me particularly mad when I'm having text conversations with people and they just don't read what I've written. I'm just like, fuck's sake, scroll up. Like it's oh, right, my right goodness. <laughs> Do not even get me started. <laughs> Cause you know, I'm moving right now. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm like trying to like, you know, give away and like sell a whole bunch of stuff. And so I'm having conversations with like 50 different people at the same time, quite, quite literally. Uh, and so many of those conversations, it'll be like, how much is this? It's like, read the freaking listing. <laughs> Whereabouts in town are you based? It's like, I told you literally two seconds ago. <laughs> yes. Oh, anyway, rant over. It's minor. It's fine. Um. <laughs> But then then certainly to me, the stage after listening is when people start to be able to take that load from you and can point Mm. out things like, you know, our office is physically inaccessible to me when I'm having a pain flare because none of the doors are automatic and I don't have that many hands. And the doors are heavy. Like, fuck, if you're not going to make your doors automatic, at least make them light. God's sake. Mm. And... I'm often the only person that ever talks about accessibility for events. Like, Mm. it's very frustrating because, like, while I know that I have this physical limitation, because people are off on client sites so much, we never know if someone's, like, broken their ankle or something, right? Like, it's it's politeness, essentially, to make Mm -hmm. things accessible in case, you know, an able-bodied person is temporarily embarrassed by injury, like, let alone whether you have disabled people working with you. So for me, like, that listening step is really, like, sort of preparation, then part of action. But then, like, 
true action is like going out and doing that work, asking those questions, pushing for change, even though it does not directly benefit you. Because people who push for change that doesn't directly benefit them get listened to more, both because of like privilege, but also because people view it as not being like necessarily self-interested. So like when I talk about like racism being bad, that mm. carries more weight than someone who's non-white doing that. Because if someone yeah. who's non-white is like, racism is bad, affirmative action like helps us get through the door but isn't the perfect solution, like it's kind of like, oh, well, you just want to be let in the door then. Yeah. Yeah. Of course you would like it. Yeah. And like sometimes, yeah. sometimes I get this attitude, right, where it's like, you know, I've asked if I'm eligible for something because I'm non-binary and it's um, geared towards women or – Sometimes I just apply and then I ask afterwards and I say, hey, I didn't get this. Did I not get it because I'm non-binary or was it because my application didn't meet the mark? And the response will be kind of like, oh, well, you know, you can't expect to just get into these things, blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, I know it's disappointing, but like, don't be, don't think this is like a gender thing. And it's like, I wasn't asking that. Mm. I just genuinely think that as the one of the very few non-binary people who apply. Like, maybe it would be good to represent other gender minorities, but that's fine. Mm -hmm. And so, essentially just, like, wield your privilege like a club to fix the world (laughs) is my big piece of, like, what I want from allies. I love that. (laughs) We were talking, um, I'm part of a, it's very long title, LGBTQI+. People with Disabilities co-design group where we have an invited speaker to talk about like a particular topic uh, and then we discuss that topic for an hour Um, and it's this wonderfully diverse group of people with disabilities. I'm learning a lot about the world basically like and Mm. meeting just like some fantastic people um, including a guy who's been like extremely active in the LGBTQI disability space for like 30 years and that's wild to hear about (laughs) but one of the things we talked about in our last session was advocacy Mm -hmm. and advocacy is very different to allyship right like allyship is saying we want you to not speak on behalf of a group but act on behalf like act for the betterment of a marginalized group is kind of allyship Mm-hmm. Um, and then advocacy is... Wield when... your privilege as a club, I think, is the yeah, yeah, formal yeah. definition. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but then advocacy is this idea of speaking on behalf of someone. And that's that's a much more tricky kind of area to be in. And, like, broadly, like, mm-hmm. we sort of agreed as a group that people should only advocate for us, like, particularly as people with disabilities, like, when we explicitly say so and when they yeah. when we trust that they are able to speak to our needs um and like this idea of like nothing about us without us uh that's that's exactly what i was thinking yeah so that actually came from disability <laughs> yeah. activism mm. that's where that sentence came from it's really important to us as a community and it's like it's very interesting because like particularly disabled people and like our speaker at the time was someone with an intellectual disability uh, and he was saying that often people just do it for people with intellectual disabilities. They just decide they're going to go right. and advocate. Um, and Australia is currently going through a royal commission into the treatment of people with disabilities. And there's a lot of examples where this has been actively harmful 
to mm-hmm. a number of people with disabilities where they've just had like all of their rights taken away from them. Mm. And so it's like, it's this very tricky space where I'm like, I don't want anyone to speak on behalf of me unless I explicitly say, I need you to say X, Y, Z for me. And I think that's how a lot of people read it when I ask them to speak up about an injustice. Mm-hmm. Because for a lot of the stuff, I'm the only person that they know that's experiencing this injustice, which like, this is a whole lot about the other people they know. And so they see it mm-hmm. as being like, oh, you're asking me to speak on behalf of you. And it's like, no, no, <laughs> I'm asking you to fix these deep seated problems, which is a trickier ask, but also one that doesn't involve you saying Sophia feels X. You know, because you you don't know. Mm-hmm. Mm. For all of the the crap that uh, government employees get, I think something something that I've noticed that's actually really quite cool is that um, just by nature of working in government and by nature of being explicitly, you must think about those with disabilities. You must think about. Uh, those of different ethnicities and nationalities. You must think about cultural differences. Um, you must think about uh, tangata whenua. You must think about uh, how how anything like like how anything you do relates back to totality. And because they're in that environment constantly 24 7 i found that like when i work with people who work in government on other events they're always the ones to notice when something is missing which is amazing because it really it's a huge wake-up call for me a person who is a perpetual tryhard that it makes me realize just how much kind of slips through my my mind even when I am trying to be as inclusive as I possibly can. And I think it's it's a good reminder of how powerful an environment is to to shape your behavior rather than just intent. Because I think individual intent is really important and um, necessary. But what I think a lot of these uh, conversations are missing is talk and discussion around how how we create entire environments where thinking oh is there a is there a ramp uh is there an accessible entrance to this event space um do we have have we asked the people attending what their dietary requirements are um do we need to to think about the the cultural sensitivities around you know if if we're hosting this on indigenous land, if we're next to, like in the Māori calendar, there are days where you rest and there are days where you where you do stuff. So, like, is that something we're considering? Um, which is usually never. Like, usually that's not something anyone considers, and that's because we're we're not exposed to it enough. Mm. Like, we're just not in that environment. And so, something that I've I've learned just from working with uh, on events with people who work in government is that when they are exposed to that uh, regularly it just becomes second nature it, it's not even like a thing that's hard or politicized you know it's just a natural thing that you consider and so a lot of what I think about is like how do we 
get to that place? Like, what what are the actions that that we can do to to really just make it super easy to do the right thing, rather than like struggling through it? You know, I feel like you might have guessed that this is something I would say. Uh, but like mm-hmm. the way I really view it is like checklists. Mm-hmm. You know, like I have a mental checklist when I think about inclusion and I just mm. go through it when I'm holding an event. I have a mental checklist where I'm like, okay, yeah. does it fit X, Y, Z? When was our last event held? Does this one at a better time for like certain groups of people? Cause like mm. you're never going to hold an event at a time in a place that suits everyone, but you can do your mm. best to do it. And if you hold many events, you can switch them up to make sure they do eventually support everyone and allow mm. everyone you want to attend to attend. Mm. And it's stuff like, um, we had a new joiner in the office, right. And I was sort of chatting to her and she's from internal. So she's fairly familiar with it, but we're in a different building. So I'm like, Oh, so we have the toilets over there and the unisex and accessible toilets are over there. Um, there's this and there's mm. that. And, oh, what are your pronouns? I'm sorry, I haven't asked yet. And she was like, oh, yeah, she, <laughs> her. What are your pronouns? I'm like, hello, welcome to normalizing pronoun chat 101. <laughs> I love how, like, delighted people are when that happens, though. Like, I don't, I don't know, maybe it's because I live in, like, leftist Wellington. <laughs> but every time that like I've asked that or I've been asked that it's just been like like a like a little bit of delight like oh yes like let's let's do this let's normalize this and I recently was at um NetHui which is yeah. like a like a unconference event about the internet yeah. and they had pronoun stickers for your badge and everyone loved it everyone was like oh this is so cute like it's just yeah it's just great. I recently had someone, uh, so, <laughs> um, someone I knew in high school who was like one of the most hectic people I knew in high school, yeah. uh, now works as a conference organizer and she, mm-hmm. she sent me their plans for accessibility requirements for a conference they were organizing. Cause we'd had, mm. we'd had dinner together and she was like, I'm, I don't even know who to ask around like gender and pronouns to make sure that I'm being inclusive and I really do and I'm like well look Mm. these are the groups you can ask um but if you want it done just like quickly like I'm not a professional in this but I'm more than happy to look over it for you um and so she sent it to me and she had done really well right so it was things like Mm -hmm. um pronouns uh they have genderless washrooms um and then the signs on the door would say, and this was something she wasn't sure about and something I recommended, the signs on the door will say stalls and urinals or stalls only. Yeah. And then I was like, oh, and you could also mention which ones have sanitary bins in them and which ones have needle disposals in them. Um, they mm-hmm. have a quiet room for people who just need a break or people with autism, and that was awesome. And then a separate mm-hmm. prayer room. And I was like, oh, something you could do that would really improve inclusiveness for Muslim people who go there to prayer uh, would be to show them where the direction of Mecca is on the wall so they know which direction they're praying Aww. in and they don't have to figure it out themselves. And it was That's like, nice. it was really nice to get something where she had done that first level thought and even like some mm. kind of, you know, I don't want to like put in levels to inclusiveness, but like that baseline thought and then some additional pieces to it. So I could be like, mm. oh, well, here are all of the actual value add things <laughs> that people will really mm. appreciate, like, right? Like, because things like, having a prayer room for like a three-day conference 
you should. Otherwise, Muslim people will not be able to like eat if they're doing, you know, the five prayers a day or three prayers a day. Because um, mm. part of praying in Islam is like you cleanse yourself, and so like you've been doing work, and then you cleanse yourself, you wash, and you pray, and you do that so that you can then eat. Um, it's just kind of like in a very simplified version, like washing your hands and then like saying grace before lunch um, mm. would be the Christian equivalent-ish. And I know I'm oversimplifying and I'm sorry, but like that's the kind of baseline point of reference. And so like, yeah, for me, baseline accessibility for a long conference, an all-day conference, a multiple-day conference is you should have a prayer room. But then the thing that actually mm. makes that useful is to say this is where the direction of Mecca is. Mm-hmm. my friend Nadine had already done the thing where she'd been like we've made sure there are washing facilities available in that prayer room so you don't have to go and wash somewhere else and then come back here and pray um mm-hmm. and it's like that's awesome right like I love it when I see that people have done these baseline things they've made sure that there were wheelchairs available on site to hire if you needed them and I said mm-hmm. an additional piece of information the thing that actually like that makes this awesome as opposed to just like accessible is to say what kind of wheelchairs they are Mm. um whether they're because there are there are a few different types of wheelchairs so there's um powered chairs which usually aren't available for hire which fair enough they're really expensive there's self-propelled and there's transport wheelchairs uh and the ones that are i don't want to say like actually useful um the ones that are better for a lot of disabled people are the self-propelled wheelchairs so particularly if you're used to being Mm -hmm. in a wheelchair as long as you can like you want to be able to control your direction where you're going like how you're managing this and this is particularly useful Mm -hmm. for people who are traveling interstate or traveling a long distance because it means like if they're a bit ambulatory they don't need to bring their own wheelchair and they could just use a self-propelled one whereas a transport wheelchair is one where you can't control your direction your speed where you're going you require someone else to push you right and that is really disempowering. Yeah. And so giving people a heads up as to what type they would be interacting with before they came in would help them make that decision as to whether to bring their own mobility aids as well or not. Mm. And it just, oh, God, it makes me so happy when people do <laughs> any kind of checklist and they have that basic accessibility inclusion stuff in place so that you can actually start making it, you can actually start, adding those like little touches where it's clear that you've thought about the needs of the people that are attending. I was really pleased. It's just about being thoughtful. God, I'm so proud of her. She was a mess at high school (laughs) and now she's like this very, I wouldn't say sensible, but very thoughtful young adult. That's who we all should aim to be more. Yeah. More thoughtful. Mm. That's lovely. Sorry, we normally do nighttime recordings. Ah, uh, sorry, we normally do afternoon recordings, and this is now a nighttime mm. recording. So we're both just like mm, bedtime. <laughs> it's, it's ten p.m. Mm. <laughs> oh, Serena, <laughs> that's all good. Oh, I'm awake. I promise. <laughs> what What else is there about allyship? I just wish people would try more. Like, I I know, like you're you're talking more about like you know, kind of next level people who have already considered. Yeah. I'm talking yeah. about action. You're talking yeah. about being a decent goddamn human being. I don't want to blame individual people for the lack of consideration because I do think that we live in a very strange world where you can very easily never have to 
consider it. Not only never have to consider it, but you you could be easily be in a, an environment which puts you down for even attempting to consider these things because you might be in a in an environment where uh where <laughs> being inclusive and like you know trying your best to to support other people is a politicized issue which it shouldn't be which is like the the silliest thing i've ever heard but like that's the world we live in and if if you're in that environment then it's natural to not even consider to these things or to consider the act of considering yeah. uh, allyship to be a joke well and to i think be, yeah i think that's also why we see um some very prominent often a bit older women who have succeeded mm. who kind of uh the term i tend to use is close the door behind them oh god yeah um, and that's because they've had to fight through so much and been in this environment where it is a bad thing to express compassion to express care because like essentially you know women in business get two choices they are cold and good at their job or they are warm mm -hmm. and ineffectual mm -hmm. <laughs> good thanks sexism Great. <laughs> love the choices i get here i mean like i've seen that in every job i've ever held right like and mm -hmm. there have been some exceptions to that which have been fantastic but generally the perception is is one of those two and so that's where you see that kind of like people who are part of a marginalized group succeed, but they've been steeped in that culture and steeped in this idea of like, I have suffered, like I've worked really hard. And so I want other people to also work this hard because the hard work is part of what makes me able to do this. Like mm. that's why you see that basically. Something I, I really like actually is your analogy about how feminism is a ramp. Ah, um, uh, yes. <laughs> and I've been I've been using it a little bit at work actually to kind of talk about like because I don't wanna I don't want to excuse people who say shit things, but I mm -hmm. do want to encourage them to be on their journey of learning. Yes. And something I find very tough is basically this extreme social pressure on me to be kind. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yes, I'm a kind person, but sometimes people say some shit. You just you, it gets tiring. You gotta tell them. Yeah. And essentially, uh, I don't know if I've kind of talked about this on the podcast before, but like, I'm the only out non-binary person in a company of nine thousand people plus, right? Mm. I am the only trans person that most of my colleagues know that they know. Mm -hmm. And so I have this intense pressure to represent not just non-binary people, but the entire trans community to everyone I work with. Oh, my with. God. Mm -hmm. And everything I do, every time I, like, lose my temper over something, every time I, you know, get upset about something, every time something goes wrong and I am emotional or respond in a quote-unquote wrong way, that is going to impact how the people around me treat the next trans person they meet. Mm. cool so i've actually found talking about you know it being a ramp as being like a really good way to kind of not excuse people for being yeah. for essentially behaving badly for discriminating against me it's so weird to say to not excuse people for that but to rather like shape it as being part of a journey while also explicitly saying like you have to keep going up that ramp 
Yeah. Because I do. Like, um, we introduced a new training around gender and inclusion, and I've had people sort of say to me, oh, I really understand now, like, what you're going through, and then immediately misgender me, and it's like, cool. You don't, (laughs) but thank you. (laughs) And so I don't want people to kind of, like, jump onto that ramp and then be like, look at me go, I've made it onto the ramp. Well, that's the thing. Like, gravity goes down. Yeah. So if you don't do anything, if you're not consistently reminding yourself and consistently working at it, you're going to slide right back down. And you're not you're not going to get anywhere without work. And so you better work. <laughs> like, and you're not going to get anywhere, like, let alone in allyship, just like in life without criticism, right? Like this is something yeah. I try really hard to teach the juniors we see at work is like – you should be able to offer criticism. People should be able to take it. And when it comes to interacting with me personally, I want you to. I want you to tell me when I fuck up, right? <laughs> like, mm. it can even yeah. be as simple as saying, hey, Sophia, you fucked up here. And, like, that's an okay thing to say specifically to me. But generally, like, offering criticism and feeling able to offer criticism, I don't think it's, like, a work-important thing, but it's a life-important thing. I yeah like please if I'm ever fucking up like pull me aside and tell me that I think I've talked to you about this before but like that's one of my biggest fears is that I'm just like constantly being a dick and no one's telling me yeah (laughs) it's just like oh my god I have a colleague who said something very interesting he's my best colleague and he sort of said like He's very interesting. So he's one of the few people who, before I started making Big Fuss at work, was, like, really proactive with using pronouns that I wanted for me. Uh, So, like, sort Mm -hmm. of when we first spoke, I was like, you know, I use she, he, and they, but I really just like it when people only ever use she, her pronouns for me. And so he was just like, Mm -hmm. okay, and just didn't use them for me because I sort of said that it made me happy to hear the other two. And he, he comes from a similar place where he's just like, you know, my biggest fear like I never want to hurt someone from actions that I take yeah but then he also has the flip side of that where he was like I gain joy from making other people like happy sure and so um when when we talk about it he's like yeah like a lot of the time I feel like my actions are really selfish because I do these things to make other people happy but I do them because they make me happy and I'm just like that's a good amount of introspection (laughs) it's like uh, you're a 25-year-old straight white guy. What's going on? Like, how did you end up like this? <laughs> how can I replicate this? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but no, it's it's always very interesting to kind of talk to him about this stuff because he thinks very deeply about it. And um, it sort mm. of came up because one of our other colleagues is sheltered, <laughs> for lack of a better term. And... We, we have a few conversations like that, and often he's very quiet in those conversations while I tend to talk a lot more. And I sort of reached mm. out to him and I said, well, do these make you uncomfortable? Because if they do, like, I will take steps to kind of shut them down where I can um, because, like, I don't want you to feel uncomfortable in a work environment, basically. And he mm. was like, no, I just think, like, you know, I really want to learn. And yeah. I think – people hear about my kinds of experiences enough in the world. And I was just like, mm. oh, what? 
I don't really know how to deal with this. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. My sort of, like, development of a working relationship with him has been really interesting. Because, like, we talk a bit about allyship because he, he very much prefers to kind of listen. Like, that's really his priority. And we've had a bit of a conversation where I've been like, hey, in these circumstances, like, I think it would be best if you spoke up. And he was like, that is very <laughs> unnatural to me, but I will start doing that. <laughs> <laughs> and sort of like talking to someone a lot while they move on that step, but from listening to action has mm. been really, really interesting. Mm. I think it's also really important to to kind of hone in on, to remind people of the fact that action doesn't necessarily have to mean public speaking yeah. and a lot of the times uh your voice in a one-on-one conversation with uh someone who could do with some reminding of you know how to best support the people around them sometimes that kind of private conversation is much more effective uh and much more scary yeah. <laughs> I, I know like especially especially for the more quiet types um the the people who who just are really not comfortable raising their voice in a in a public setting like you don't have to raise your voice in a public setting you can you know you can go up to someone um privately after the fact and just be like hey you know uh i would want a heads up if i were in your position so here's a heads up and i and i find that is way way more effective and kind and just generally like more chill and low-key and approachable than publicly uh saying hey here's what's up you know what i mean but then again it's like it, it, it'll depend on your specific yeah. situation and it'll depend on the the person doing the talking um but yeah, do what's comfortable for you. Something I try and really encourage people to do, particularly in like less uh, less mature workplaces, is to mm. start just start asking the questions. Mm. So instead of saying like, you know, we should have X, Y, Z, asking mm. why don't we have this? Yeah. Mm. You know, like why don't we have cultural leave for Eid? Like why is our office not accessible? How has this happened? Mm. Because like that places the onus on someone firstly to explain why that has happened and why it is appropriate to not have, you know, that accessibility, that inclusion, that level of, you know, goodness in the world that mm-hmm. they, that they have control over essentially. And it's mm-hmm. often like, it's a very, it's the beginning of the ramp, right? Like it's the easiest yeah. starting point for action is to notice that something's wrong and then say out loud, why is yeah. it this way? Like how, how has this happened? Yeah, and I can see people who might be adverse to to um, to doing that for fear of sounding too controversial or too political, like v- being very pointedly like, "Why aren't we doing X Y Z?" But I, I'd like to remind everyone that it doesn't have to sound controversial or political at all. It could be as easy as saying, "Hey, you know, a friend of mine, their work has this thing, um, and I thought it was a really cool idea." Uh, is this something that we have? Yeah. And if not, like, can we have it? Like, it really doesn't need to be pointed. It really doesn't need to be confrontational. Yeah. It can it can be really chill and low-key and 
but just just getting that kind of reminder and bringing those ideas up and bringing those perspectives up in other people's minds is is really enough to to start that conversation yeah and that's what's really key because like i work with our hr team quite a bit when i say Mm -hmm. work with i complain to them a lot (laughs) and one of the comments that one of the uh sort of quite senior people in hr said to me is she was like i've learned a lot just from talking to you and it's like well firstly you shouldn't have you work in hr (laughs) but like she would never have asked those kinds of questions before I started coming to her and being like, hey, all these things are extremely fucked up for me. Mm. Like, how fix it, please. God, this is your job. <laughs> <laughs> and so I try and approach things just kind of being like, you know, potentially you've never been exposed to this before. Hmm. Yeah. Potentially, yeah, you have lived an incredibly sheltered life where, like, somehow I am the first trans person you've ever met, even though you're, like, 40-something. Mm. And often, like, when people say that to me as well, I, I will say, I'm probably not the first trans person you've met. I'm just the first yep. one you know you've <laughs> met. Yep. Even that, like, opens their minds to a lot of thoughts and a lot of questions around the world. And so mm. when it comes to, yeah, like, that first step of asking the question, like, Often you'll be planting a seed in someone else's mind that will sort Mm. of like, a lot of analogies in this episode, planting a seed in someone else's mind that will like open the door to bigger and better things. And so like if you're starting to take action, like that's such a good place to start. Mm. Yeah, and everyone can do it. The, The style of allyship and advocacy... I think a lot about like the the current kind of cultural landscape of today a lot. So I I think about a lot of problems through that lens. But I I really do think that the the nature of the stories that we hear, how we hear about things really uh highlights and spotlights the ways of communicating to other people that's very loud and individualistic and um and so I think it's easy for for a lot of people to believe that that is the only way they can be an ally. That is the only way they can support other marginalized groups is to be that kind of very loud, very public person, you know, standing, uh, speaking up in, in, in a large meeting and, you know, going out and doing all these things um, because that's just what we see. Uh, but that's really not like the only way that's not the only way you can support others you can support others in more quiet ways more like low-key ways um, less confrontational ways and that's that's totally just as valid and we really do need both of those styles working in tandem you know we need that kind of public um, calling outs and, and really uh, really effective, like, one-to-many forms of communication. Um, but we desperately need more of, I think, the the more grassroots, one-to-one, um, kind of low-key pull your friend aside and be like, hey, so my friend's workplace has, like, this thing, and, like, she finds it really really great um because she can like pray and like that's not something that we consider here can 
can that be something we consider here? Like, there are so many different styles of support for other marginalized groups, and you don't have to be put off by it. You can find one that suits you, and you can do it, and we can all do it. And then the more we all do it, the easier it becomes for everyone else, and the the less problematic it becomes. Yeah. And then rainbows and happy times. And also as you build your confidence. Well, as you build your confidence, you can start doing the more fierce forms of activism. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You just slowly start adding pronoun stickers to everything you take to work. Heck yeah. yeah. Everything in your workplace and increasing the size of the pronouns in your email signature <laughs> until people get their shit together. <laughs> or like convincing convincing the people who sit next to you to, to add their pronouns to their to their like badge or email signature or, or whatever it yeah. is you in your workplace. Or, like for example, like the whole like Oh, I was going to say, for example, what I did, which was get onto a panel where I was speaking to a number of other employees at work and then say, mm-hmm. hey, partner who's facilitating the panel, why don't we have cultural leave? Mm-hmm. And she was like, I don't know. And I'm like, oh, well, it seems just really discriminatory. But yeah, I'm, I'm unusual. So you don't have to do that, but you'll get there. There's so many different things that we can do. And I think it's really important for us to recognize that all of that's really important. And the most important thing is that we are continuously listening. So not just like listen for a bit, empathize for a bit, decide on what we're going to do and like just do it, like continuously be updating uh, what we know about each other and what we understand about the world and continuously be trying to be better people. And it, it really doesn't have to, you know, be in a in the way that you've seen it on social media or in viral videos or, or whatever have you. Like, you have more influence than you think. Yeah. And, and even helping people understand when things are a little mm, bit fucked is, like, yeah. really good. Because sometimes, again, like, if people have been sheltered or socialized to believe particular things, like their voice being less worthwhile or that a particular thing being just, like, how the world is, they might not realize Mm. that they're experiencing, like, significant bullshit from people Mm -hmm. around them or from their workplace. Mm. And so talking to them and being like, hey, that sounds completely fucked and also maybe illegal. Like, mm. that's a really valuable conversation to have as well. And it's not an aggressive one. It's, a, it's more of a supportive one. Mm. It's a collaborative conversation. Yeah. yeah. All right. That has been Things of Interest. We're back, baby. Back, baby. <laughs> we talked about allyship for a full hour at night, um, which is not where we used to recording. <laughs> Uh, but we managed to stay on topic for pretty much the entire time, which is wow. very weird for us. Are we more focused in the evening? Should we start doing <laughs> I mean, I feel worse just in my body I'm and myself. falling asleep, yeah. <laughs> so I don't have like a list of things where I can be like, here are all the different things we talked about because we just talked about allyship. Uh, so <laughs> I've been Sophia France. I'm Serena Chan, and also I like and subscribe, comment. Oh, okay, <laughs> good. I'm doing it in the wrong order. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's okay. I, I just got confused. I've got the nighttime weirdness. Um, please <laughs> leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Leave us some stars. We are pretty cool in our opinions. We're also open to feedback. So if you want to leave that feedback in the form of 
a review. You can also email us at castinginterest at gmail.com. We're on Facebook at Things of Interest. We're on Twitter at Casting Interest. I don't check that Twitter account for you, Serena. Oh, uh, you know, occasionally. Yeah, cool. Serena gets push <laughs> notifications for it, so she'll see that. Yeah. Um, generally, we're, we're out there in the world. So please, like, if you liked this episode, if you have an idea for an episode, I now have, like, a list that's blue-tacked to my wall so that I can keep track yes. of thoughts. So, like, please feel free to reach out and be like, you guys should talk about this. And we'll be like, we don't know about it. Can you suggest a guest? <laughs> um, but all of that would be awesome. We love to hear from you. We are totally weeded it out by the fact that people listen to this, but we love I'm you. continuously weeded out. Thank you yeah. for giving us your precious, precious time. And as always, it's stay amazing. interesting.